Welcome to another edition of An Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill, with my sidekick. I'm Veronica A. Carr. And who are you again? That's a good question. Today, I have no idea. So, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but I'm the producer and editor of our lovely podcast. I am also a researcher, um, writer, digital media strategist for Nanny Jack and Company, and a very tired mama right now. Okay. So thanks for all that information. So September... 2022 in 12 different states in the United States of America has been designated as International Underground Railroad Month. And what in the world does that mean? In 2019, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland declared September as International Underground Railroad Month because to recognize the state of Maryland as the most powerful destination for authentic underground railroad history. Say that again. Authentic. 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 The most authentic, authentic, not made up. No, so just because your grandma claims that her church is part of the Underground Railroad, it might not have been. So Especially if the building was created after emancipation. Right, right. In 1921. Right. So, and September actually happens to coincide with the escape of two um, notable figures in the Underground Railroad and abolition movement, being um, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. So hence, September being under- National Underground Railroad Month. And it's also to commemorate... Not only their stories, but the stories of countless people who escaped along the Underground Railroad and those who assisted them, like, of course, the noted William Still, Henry Holland Garnett, Josiah Henson, Douglas and Tubman, and numerous others who played a vital role in the Underground Railroad, who we haven't had a chance to list. And even though we're going to largely talk about Maryland um, with a specific example in Baltimore City, could you name a couple of other states that have recently come on board to designate September as International Underground Railroad Month. There is Arkansas, Indiana, of course, Maryland, Kansas, Missouri, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and our current home state of North Carolina. So in essence, the momentum is building with regard to uh, new states coming on board to recognize the impact, significance, and legacy of the Underground Railroad. It is, because as we're building or rebuilding, in essence, the narrative around the Underground Railroad, we realize it just wasn't the southern states that should be recognized, or just Maryland or Pennsylvania, but that it extended as far as Ohio, and of course, as we know, well up into Canada. So a lot of those states that border um, Canada have huge, tremendous, often under-recognized, under-researched Underground Railroad history. Okay, with that said, can I get you to, to throw out a quote from the National Underground Railroad Center that came out with their most recent press release, please. The National Underground Railroad Freedom Center on September the 1st, 2020, stated the following. The Underground Railroad was the nation's first large-scale social justice movement, and its lessons endure as we continue this journey for justice, according to the president and COO, Woodrow Keown Jr., and I hope I didn't mess up your name, of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. It's interesting when we think about social justice movements, we often think of in terms of 20th and 21st century now movements, but the Underground Railroad doesn't often come to people's minds as a social justice movement, but it was. Indeed, and, and that's why a word that's beginning to um, gain some momentum and popularity uh, in the history circles is reimagining. And so we're now able to reimagine the Underground Railroad experience as being part of a, a social justice movement. So you're not just thinking about current day Black Lives Matter um, or, you know, the gay rights movement, the women's movement. Now you can actually include the, the Underground Railroad movement in that because 
it was a freeing of people who were enslaved by both black and white people um, coming together to fight against what they believed and what they viewed as an injustice. Okay, so with that said, today's podcast, we're going to be really specific and zero in with laser-like focus on another trending phrase that is gaining momentum in all circles, and that phrase is called? The reverse underground railroad. So this is not the underground railroad, but the reverse underground railroad. And in simplistic terms, it actually means to kidnap a free person of color and sell them into enslavement. So this was very unfortunately common. Um, and unlike the Underground Railroad, where there is documentation of um, people who were freed, who made it to various Underground Railroad locations, and people who were actually unfortunately sold, the reverse Underground Railroad was not as documented. Okay, so up to this point, is it easy to uh, uncover uh, and publicize numerous examples of the reverse underground railroad, or is that a difficult task at hand? I think it's I think it's more, more trending toward difficult um, because there were tens of thousands of African Americans, free African Americans, who were sold into slavery, and no, and very few records, scant records that exist. So you often have to go through WPA, the Works Progress Administration. Um, narratives to kind of glean through those to see if you could find a name, a mention of a name, or, um, you know, reading various different slave narratives or newspaper accounts where someone's looking for a relative that has been kidnapped. And that can be very laborious and very time-consuming when it comes to that. And and what's a key component of all that, what an individual has in their personal possession in their homes? So if you have a photograph, if there is a letter, if there's a petition, a family Bible, if there's some sort of documentation that actually gives you some sort of clue and key and a research key that allows you to go down a path to figure that out. You know, like if the family has their certificate of freedom or writ of affidavit or last will and testament, there are all types of enslaved documents that can help give you a piece of a larger puzzle that will allow you to put this narrative together. So with that said, um, many years ago, I was able to acquire a very significant document. And of course, with with many items in the vast Nanny Jack and Company archives, when they were acquired, I fully did not have a clue. Let me say that again, didn't have a clue as to the educational and historical significance of what I was acquiring. But I have to always say divine intervention or the hand of the divine order allowed me to acquire it. So we picked up a very rare document that really is uh, an example of the reverse underground railroad and the whole legality of it is spelled out in this rare document that my sidekick is going to share with you now. And when we say rare, this is really, really rare. This is a petition on half of a free person of color from a white attorney for their now enslaved client. Let's just set the table some more. This is one of the most famous Baltimore uh, enslavers that operated a jail that are connected. And as you learn more about this field, you will really understand that many of the uh, traders had uh, relatives and outlets and uh, auxiliary locations in different parts of the country. Take it away. All right, so August 1853, to the Honorable William Frick, Judge of the Supreme Court for Baltimore. 
The petition of George Wright, a free man of color, humbly represents that he is detained, held in bondage as a slave by Marcy Fountain and B.M. and W.L. Campbell, and that he is now actually confined in a jail, a place of confinement for Negroes in Pratt Street, belonging to the latter, and that he is credibly informed and apprehends that they are about to sell and remove him from the state of Maryland as a slave for life. He therefore humbly prays that a subpoena addressed to the said Marcy Fountain and B.M. and W.L. Campbell to appear in your honorable court on a day to be therein named, and further your petitioner prays to not be moved from the jurisdiction of the court. Nolan Poe, attorney for petitioner. There is so much to unpack in that document that we could do a whole segment just on the uh, verbiage, some of the namesakes that are involved in it, and weave a magnificent, much larger story. But because of time, we're not going to do that. So this is a free black man who was just snatched off the street and wrongly placed in a slave jail. And more importantly and also interesting is the fact that he's in a state and a city that while it was a slave state, was also a state with one of the largest free black populations in the country. And the, the good thing about this rare document is that because of research, we can weave a story about George Wright. We, we figured out which one of the George Wrights that this was, you know, where he lived, his occupation, and that helps to humanize the story. We have his name, we know where he lived, uh, and that, that makes it real for, for a lot of people. And it puts a face to a name for the hundreds of thousands of free African-Americans like George Wright across the country that were placed in these slave jails. We don't know exactly what George Wright's fate was, but unfortunately, the fate of many was to be sold secretly and quickly without any type of provisions of the law coming in to New Orleans, to Alabama, to Georgia, and even as far down as Florida. And with this document, what is really also exciting is that a a Maryland repository has a circa 1910 photograph of the remnant of the jail site. So you actually get to see where George Wright was being held. And uh, another fascinating piece of this is that, truth be told, listen to what he's saying, that he's concerned that he will be sold into slavery for life. So imagine the fears and the emotional trauma and stress that he was under. I mean, and it had to be a very frightening, um, beyond frightening situation because a lot of these enslavers and slave traders would do just that. They would, ruthless. they were ruthless. They would capture a free person of color and then they would quickly try to make sure they could sell them down south or um, have someone falsify, a, you know, a record or an affidavit to say that this person was my property um, and they ran away to Maryland, even though George Wright could actually claim and show that he was a free person of color. He had never been enslaved. I've always wanted to know how in the world did African-American George Wright reach out to an attorney that agreed to represent him with this case? Right. right. So you wonder if a family member um, reached out and said, you know, my husband, my, you know, my brother, my son, my nephew is being held in this jail and we're, you know, we're getting your legal services. So when you- so when you look at the name Frick, you get, you can get a whole bunch of documented information. Of course, if you look at the name Poe, you get a whole bunch of documented information. And you're going to realize that, that Poe is in, connected to the infamous Edgar Allan Poe. And so, and so, you know, again, I talked about how the, this one document gives you so much to unpack, but that may be for a later time. 
Now, oh, oh, the other thing I wanted to say is that the, the slave traders that were the proprietors of this jail are notorious. And you can actually type in um, Marcy Fountain and B.M. and W.L. Campbell and get numerous uh, search results, different books, different articles. They were notorious and they were ruthless. And um, much like Philip said earlier, they have connections, not just within the state of Maryland, but down to New Orleans. So they had a market, unfortunately, for not only enslaved um, freedom seekers, but also free people of color. So they knew where they could sell. The jail that held the enslaved and the traders had a network. The network is is well worth following to learn more about this um, horrific and heinous um, economic experience. So now we're actually going to talk about an individual who was held in that same jail just two years earlier. We approach African-American history and culture at Nanny Jack and Company through a material culture based through an artifact-centric approach. In other words, whatever we work on is largely coming from some primary source material in the singular or materials or collections that are within our archives that allow us to go to the Horstead's cultural onion theory and continue to peel back the layers that allow us to do this great interpretation and storytelling and intersectionality. So this next story actually came off of a carte de visite, otherwise known as a CDV, which is uh, French for calling card, a small photograph of a, at the time, unidentified African-American woman. And upon doing further research, Philip found out that it was none other than a young woman by the name of Rachel Parker. Rachel Parker might sound familiar to some of you and not as familiar to others. Photographed by E.S. Marshall in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and... The reason Rachel Parker's name belongs in the history books is because in in 1851, not long after the passage of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, a young free woman of color and um, by the name of Rachel Parker was actually working on a farm in Nottingham, Pennsylvania for a Quaker family. And unfortunately, along came a slave catcher by the name of Thomas McCreary, who had actually just kidnapped Rachel's sister, who was working on an adjoining farm, Elizabeth. Thomas McCreary, unfortunately, was known for kidnapping not only freedom seekers, but also free African-Americans. So he stole both Rachel and Elizabeth and took them to Maryland. Elizabeth actually was sold down to New Orleans. Rachel ended up in the same jail that George Wright was in, the B.M. and W.L. Campbell Marcy Fountain Jail. And that's where our story takes a very interesting turn. I acquire photography from the 19th and 20th century because the images speak to my spirit. Hence, we created a Facebook page years ago called Eyes Are the Window to the Soul. Her eyes spoke to me. uh, And with more scholarship over the years of identifying and researching our thousands of rare photographs, I'm very interested in location. I'm interested in the photographer. I'm interested in the the sitter's body language, the the clothing, the adornment. And this image just jumped out at me and screamed, please rescue me. The reason that Rachel Parker's story actually becomes documented and isn't just one of the hundreds of thousands that were undocumented was because her white employer, along with a search party of very notable people, including um, a man by the name of Reverend John Miller Dickey, Uh Uh-oh, who's that man? Ding, 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 ding. The eventual founder of what was then known as Ashman Institute, today's Lincoln University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. So Joseph Miller, her employer, the Reverend Dickey, and a number of prominent men actually go after to actually recapture Rachel. 
And it's during that time that they're in Baltimore that unfortunately Joseph Miller is found hanging from a tree. Although the medical examiner at the time tried to rule it as suicide, we know actually what happened was that Thomas McCreary or some of his connections murdered Joseph Miller. It did not deter the other search party members um, and through uh, Reverend Dickey's connections and through Reverend Dickey's influence, they were actually able to free Rachel Parker from jail. But it took well over a year of trials and her having to bring forth uh, witnesses that said she was born free in Pennsylvania and so forth. So let's go back for a moment. Reverend Dickey was who again? Well, Reverend Dickey was actually the eventual founder of what became known as Ashman Institute, of the nation's first first degree granting college for African-American males at the time. But he was also a prominent Presbyterian minister in Oxford, Pennsylvania, who had connections not just in Pennsylvania, but throughout most of the country because he traveled. He was well known and he came from an established Presbyterian family that at one point, interestingly enough, did own slaves. Yes. So Reverend Dickey had it was kind of an interesting position on the one hand from a slave owning family, but had what appeared to be some abolitionist or at least humanitarian bend enough to want to gather a search party to go after Rachel and Elizabeth. So as an, an, a slaver, he also, I think we just throw this in. It's not what we're really talking about, but the whole premise behind establishing the Ashman Institute was to send these folks to where? To Liberia. Reverend Dickey actually believed that, Unfortunately, African-Americans, in his mind, did not, could not live in the United States as free people, so that they had to be sent to Liberia to establish their own free colony there. So look at all these complexities that are going on that are wrapped into the ultimate reverse underground railroad experience of Rachel Parker. And I think the uh, other thing is that because we lived in this community in Pennsylvania for five and a half years, it allowed us intimate experiences of really walking in the Parker's footsteps. We actually were able to go by and visit the farm that uh, Rachel was snatched off of. And we were able to talk to reported descendants that were very willing to go on record talking about uh, the Parker legacy. And we even went to the cemetery where the Parker family is interred. And the other fascinating point is I feel very honored that I can call uh, Milt Diggins, a friend of mine, and he spent over seven years of his life working on a book that I'm putting a plug in for right now. Take it away, Veronica. It is called Stealing Freedom Along the Mason-Dixon Line, Thomas McCreary, the Notorious Slave Catcher from Maryland. So much like W.L. and Campbell and Marcy Fountain were known for their slave jails, Thomas McCreary was known for slave catching. So in 2015... This book came out, and I was able to um, meet with him uh, at the Hosanna Museum Schoolhouse in Hartford County uh, years ago. And uh, Milt Diggins actually dedicates the book to the men and women of West Nottingham Township, to Rachel and Elizabeth Parker, and to Joseph Miller, who tried valiantly to right a wrong. Okay, so I know Milt, but I do not know Lucy Maddox, and what does she create? She actually wrote a book that's focused solely on the Parker sisters kidnapping called the Parker sisters, a border kidnapping in 2016 Temple University Press. So if you ever get a chance to check out either one of those books, they're great resources on both the kidnappings, but also the system of slave catching. And what, interestingly enough, is not included in the glossary? Reverse Underground Railroad. Neither of those books actually has in the index, at least, a um, mention of the Reverse Underground Railroad. And so... 
in present day, what's a go-to source that's really um, trending right now that's getting a lot of attention that talks about the reverse Underground Railroad? It's a book called Stolen, Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home, written by University of Maryland historian Dr. Richard Bell. He talks about a kidnapping of five boys from Philadelphia who were then sold along the route going into, I think, into Maryland and the Deep South. So as we wrap this up, what, what, what could you say about the Underground Railroad that you've learned over the years since we have been um, researching uh, enslavement, freeborn activity, um, reverse Underground Railroad, and just black history and culture in the Mason-Dixon region in Harford County, Maryland, Cecil County, Maryland, Oxford, Pennsylvania, Westchester, Kennett, and beyond uh, in Columbia, Pennsylvania. What are some of your new conclusions? It's a very complex network. I think if you think back to if any of us are taught anything about slavery and the Underground Railroad in uh, secondary school and so forth, middle school, high school, maybe elementary and college, we weren't really taught the complexities of the whole system that it wasn't just the component of the Underground Railroad with William Still and other abolitionists who haven't gotten the same notoriety as he has. There's more than Harry Tubman, there's more than William Still, more than Douglas. That it was a huge network, unfortunately, of very good-hearted people, but also terrible people like Joseph McCreary and Marcy Fountain and the Campbells um, on both sides. So it was a very complex network. So just as there was an extreme, extremely network of people who were helping to help help freedom seekers. There was also a reverse network on helping to keep them enslaved or in some cases make them enslaved for life. And see, so I'm going to go back to something I said earlier in the podcast where when I acquire some of these artifacts, I don't fully have the the historical bandwidth to understand its significance. And so in some cases, I have to let them marinate, uh, so to speak. And years later, it is revealed as to why we were able to acquire this rare content. So in sticking to that theme, these two items, the rare Cartavazita Rachel Parker and the uh, rare document regarding George Wright being a free man of, of color placed in an enslaver's jail, were acquired a good one, a good two decades before the other one, and now they fit together like a hand in glove to tell uh, a much more comprehensive story. And that's the key component, telling a much more comprehensive story as authentic story. story. And as our uh, dear friend, uh, Dr. Kate Larson, will tell us, who's the uh, biographer of Harriet Tubman's life and journey and abolitionist activities, that as much as, you know, of course, she loves Tubman, she's documented her, that there is a need to actually document more than just Harriet Tubman and more than Douglas and uh, Henry Holland Garnett, that there are countless um, abolitionists and Underground Railroad operatives whose names we haven't had a chance to figure out yet. And there were also people who were part of the Underground Railroad, freedom seekers, people who were um, freeborn and then placed into enslavement, that whose names we might never know, but for the ones that we do come across, uplifting their stories, because they were just as important as the people like William Still or William Lloyd Garrison, who seemed to get all the publicity and press. And I think that's partially why I was so excited years ago when I got to meet the now-retired... Um, Friends Historical Library of Swarthmore College, I mean, Christopher Dinsmore, because uh, he basically said the type of research and collecting and interpretations that we were providing through this material culture was grossly needed. And so, again, everyone is on the same page saying we need to dig deeper, uh, go down that rabbit hole uh, to do that deeper dive and uncover receipts, 
papers, books, newspaper, Bibles, anything that can help play a role in bringing to light these new stories of the reversed Underground Railroad. That concludes another edition of An Artifactual Journey. Uh, stick with us for more exciting activities dealing with material culture and its connections and how they resonate with present-day activities. <laughs>